Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Raise Green podcast. I'm your host today, Franz Hochstrasser, CEO and co-founder of Raise Green. Raise Green podcast explores the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts. Short, accessible conversations explore new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy, just, and sustainable future. As economic disparity, environmental degradation, and social injustices continue emerging as defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how. Welcome to Raise Green. Wilden Fishman lives for solar. In 2007, she founded the New York Solar Energy Society to more efficiently deliver consumer resources on energy conservation and renewable energy. As president of NYSES, she analyzes legislation and state programs and educates legislative staff to affect change. Ms. Fishman produces the Solar Salon NYC series and annual NYSES conferences. She travels to local events to show how to cook with the sun and facilitates make a solar module workshops. NYSES is the New York State distributor of Green Energy Times as well. And Ms. Fishman also serves as the chair of the American Solar Energy Society. She is a fellow at ASES. And in 2014, she was awarded the Rebecca Voorhees Award for volunteerism. We are very pleased to have you on the show. Uh, Wilden Fishman, welcome to the Raise Green podcast. Thank you, Franz. And I'm not chair of the American Solar Energy Society that belongs to Robert Foster. I do serve on the board and I am chair of a technical division called Energy Economics, but thank you. (laughs) And also (laughs) over at Solar Cookers International, I'm secretary and on the board there. That's why I do that cooking with the sun that you mentioned. Got it. Got it. Um, so many hats. Apologies for not keeping track of all of them. <laughs> if anybody wishes to come, come away with one of my hats, just let us know. <laughs> uh, I know that feeling. We're delighted to have you on, Wilden, and thank you for spending some time with us. We always like to start the show with a very wide-ranging question, which some folks think is a hardball and others uh, enjoy as softball, but uh, we'll pitch it to you here and uh, let you take it wherever you want. First off, who are you? What are you doing? And why does it matter? Okay, so yeah, I just became an activist back in the old uh, 60s anti-Vietnam War, and it continued into the League of Women Voters where I got highly trained. And I worked on a lot of boards because we were moving and moving and moving, and I have an only child. So as we moved and moved and moved, it was difficult to keep in, to keep in the job market as much as I would have liked to have. And at the same time, I found that many women had gone to work. And so the boards were shrinking, but I got a a lot of opportunities because of that. I got to Dallas, Texas, and somebody leaned up against me and said, hey, you want to start this solar thing? And I went, well, okay, that would get rid of particulate matter from coal, burning coal. And I'm into clean air and clean water. Okay, I'll do it. So that really was in the early 2000s. And there aren't that many people like us who can serve in all 50 states 
and manage what the utilities don't really want to give us, which is lots and lots of renewable energy. So we're seeing this kind of uh, emerging interest in community solar. Uh, more and more states have it. I think it was 17 last time I checked. You probably know the exact number. But it, it also it plays such an interesting role in the renewable energy story and the larger clean energy transition story. How do you view the expanding role of community solar and where should individuals go to generate community support? I view community solar as an excellent product for those who live in rental housing, for instance, and those who wish to do something and this way they can buy in and reduce their energy bill a little bit. At the same time, some houses just don't face south enough and some houses have lots of big trees. Those are other opportunities for community solar. Community solar could also be expanded to include wind and ground source heat transfer. So you might start out small with like-minded people and say, you know, we really want to do something. I wonder how we could do this together and find a spot. The big thing is trying to find a spot that everybody can agree on. And now with uh, this new farming agrivoltaics, farming around community solar so that they put the modules a little higher in the air so animals can go underneath or they've found a microclimate. There's moisture retention under those solar modules. And then the problem is in, in these 17 states, and it might be around 17 states, how friendly is the utility? And when you try to deal with the utility, they have to give you permission to, to hook in. And one thing you might say is, gee, if the utility will do this, we'll give you lots of other business. The utility can do the billing for the community solar and they're the best ones to do it. So they get a little bit of business, you get a little bit of renewable energy, and uh, hopefully you can find a spot where the town won't be saying, oh, it's so ugly, we hate this. Don't do that to us. We hate solar. So it's a bit of a touch and go, but the utilities have to share with you the load, the load meaning how much energy is being used in the community. Is there a big hospital? Are there manufacturing plants? Who's going to buy into a one or two megawatts at first? What is a megawatt anyway? Well, a megawatt takes about six acres. So you're already looking at maybe 10 to 12 acres for your first little community solar project. And you need to be near three wire pole. Can't be just down at the end where there's only one wire going down the pole and out in the woods someplace or way up the road. It needs to be near three wire pole. Those are things that you, to work out with the utility and as a community. And then I would say, look at a microgrid. A microgrid would be the next best step where you could bring in some wind, you could bring in some ground source heat transfer. There's ways that solar thermal also make plenty of electricity. And then there's uh, ways that you could heat a community using uh, building the community over 
a field of wells that are actually bringing up the temperature of the earth below the community. And that is very, very cost savings also. Some people say geothermal. Geothermal would be as if you had a volcano or a hot spring, geothermal. Mm -hmm. But we're saying ground source heat transfer. So in New York, underneath New York, it is 52 degrees all the time. Under Dallas, Texas, it's 64 degrees all the time. And bring that into your community because 64 degrees is very cool in the summer and it's very warm in the winter. So that's the kind of expertise that utilities could dive into and really help towns build out what would be initially community solar. Fabulous. So we're looking for six acre plots and three wire poles yes. and a lot of willingness from, from local leaders as well as citizens to not, uh, not say not in my backyard, but say yes in my backyard. True. Uh, great synopsis there. So you've been, you've been in this industry for a good bit of time uh, without going into the, the number of years since its nascent stages. And uh, you, you've been leading in it for, for quite some time. So you've probably been exposed to all sorts of barriers to adoption and barriers to deployment, but it seems to be going faster and faster nowadays. I'm curious, what do you view as the greatest challenge in expanding solar development in the US? Is it soft costs, module costs, permitting, utilities, political will, the human spirit? What, what do you think? I don't even know if I would say it's the color of your state, red versus blue. There's some blues and some reds. It's a mixed up pattern. But what they do, the big barrier is, for instance, my friend in Georgia, Janelle says, oh, don't try to buy solar because the utilities are heaping on um, these fees to be connected to the grid. So let's say you buy a system and you're going to, you do a little math and you know it's going to pay for itself in five, six, seven years. Okay, but then the utility says a year into it, oh, we're now charging you a $20 a month hookup charge. Well, that can really damage your whole financial plan. So we find that, re that some states come up with disastrous plans or for instance, it's the other way around. You start getting a benefit called net, net metering. They pay you a little for the, for the energy you ship out and they credit you every month. And then all of a sudden, they change that relationship and either end net metering or keep on a fee. That's one of the big barriers so that a customer mm -hmm. who doesn't understand any of this stuff suddenly sees their bill went up. Oh, great. Now look what that has happened. Oh, we can't. that's not good. And it gives us a black eye. Yeah, absolutely. Unfriendly local PUCs or utility commissions putting in place uh, structures and disincentives for adoption uh, can definitely send things the other way away from uh, deployment. You know, you, you mentioned policy. I know you work a lot with policy through ASES, and there is still a pending bill, the largest 
being contemplated, I think in US history, $555 billion for climate related projects uh, in the Build Back Better bill uh, before Congress as we speak. What do you think of proposals targeting expansion within that bill or otherwise um, that are particularly important, whether it's you know the ITC, uh, the investment tax credit, or a, a direct pay provision that would allow smaller projects to have easier access to that credit? Are there other incentives that you think would be particularly beneficial in that package or otherwise? Yeah, and again, it's uh, state by state. So the main barrier has been education. Our kids in school don't bring any education home to the parents about what energy efficiency is and what renewable energy is. On that big uh, bill, and it's important to remember that the United States has weak infrastructure that we all know about when it came to schools closing because of the pandemic, we realized that not everybody had Wi-Fi in their home and they can't get it. And if you had to work at home, you may be in a place that has really low grade Wi-Fi if you have any. And this has been a huge problem to realize our infrastructure, our bridges, we haven't paid attention. And for people like Elon Musk to say, oh, you've got to see China, man, everything's new, all the streets, all the roads, all the infrastructure, everybody has Wi-Fi, everybody has this. So we've been having our, we've done this global exchange where so much of our manufacturing was in China while we were letting our roads deteriorate and our Wi-Fi structure and our energy structure, for instance, what happened with the big freeze in Texas, all of that happened because the utility isn't forced to pay for the heating elements. Natural gas can freeze at the wellhead. Can you imagine that the gas can freeze at the wellhead? And wind turbines were blamed and so was solar. So yeah, wind turbines have a package on it that keeps it so that they can work in cold weather. But when utilities aren't regulated to be a, to do these kinds of upgrades, it makes 750 people died. And that is the kind of thing that's happening, going to rupture with climate change. So our infrastructure has to have three things. It has to have equity. It has to have a health component because it's healthier not to be breathing particulate matter, you know, from coal and burning, and then mm -hmm. you need resilience built in. So there are, there is a huge need to ramp it up and get people to work and get this job done. Now, another thing about these jobs, a lot of times I think about them is that they, they won't last that long. Once we build it all out, well, then what happens? Okay, fine. So we'll take it on the shorter term, which is, what you're saying is that in that bill is infrastructure. And as citizens, if we have to hold their feet to the fire, we have to see what our elected representatives say to us and what each state will do. And we have to become extremely active in order to see communities fairly equitably receive the benefits from this uh, massive amount of money that could be spent. 
Certainly, certainly. I, I, I love this idea of a sort of 50 state strategy or campaign to push the, the local policymakers to put in place advantageous, equitable, healthy, and resilient-minded policy that takes that, that federal initiative and, and translates it into success on the ground. It's a good reminder that we all can kind of make a difference even just in our own municipality uh, by raising raising our, our hand and showing up at meetings, continuing to improve our, our local communities that add up to a larger story. Wilden, I know we've spoken a few times and I, 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 I know we've introduced this idea of, of crowdfunding uh, for solar. And I, I'm wondering kind of how familiar you are with regulation crowdfunding and if you think it can support um, expanding solar deployment. I'm very interested, and I mentioned it on a call today with the American Solar Energy Society. I sit on several committees and chair of the upcoming um, External Affairs Communications and Committee. So yeah, I was saying that we need to know more about this. And by the way, ACES, you could put in a proposal. You need to pitch this out throughout our magazines and our publications that people can put in a proposal and be accepted into a group such as yours, where then the funding would come down for that. So th this is something that I'm excited to learn more about. Well, we're certainly here to, to answer questions and, and share. And I know we've got an opportunity to share what we're working on at Raise Green coming up uh, in January of, of 2022. Um, so looking forward to that. But Wilden, I want to give you a chance also to, to expand on some of the things that uh, you have kind of top of mind these days. You know, you, you're such a wealth of knowledge in the field. Are there things that, you know, you would want to raise awareness around that, that you're working on that you're particularly concerned about? Yeah, I'd start with energy efficiency. In our circle, we say E-E-R-E, -E -E, energy efficiency before renewable energy. And that means insulating your house. That means insulating our buildings. So the biggest waster of energy are leaky buildings. We pump them full of heat, the wind blows, the wind can blow the heat out of the building if it is not airtight. Oh, airtight, I'm going to suffocate. Yeah, airtight requires a very low powered ventilation system. and Actually, it's healthy for us to have a fresh indoor air introduced in small amounts while you're heating a building and that building doesn't leak out all the heat, especially on a windy night in cold weather. If you had an infrared camera and pointed it at that building, you'd see just flames of horrible heat coming out of the building. We want our buildings to look sort of a greenish blue under infrared, that healthy color, so that we're not leaking so much energy. Utilities actually do waste the most energy. They put out the most carbon. Then we have transportation. Then we have buildings. But our buildings are something that we can affect more in our own lifestyle and with our friends and our families. So getting a good insulation package and getting the building weatherized, having it caulked, that will make a huge difference. And I use something called Reflectix. 
it's very, very inexpensive. It's like this really cool foam filled metallic material and you cut a square of it and you put it behind a radiator and that keeps your wall from heating up. And it takes that heat and bounces it into the room. So it, it's very low cost and scissors. And I use some caulk on the back to stick it to the wall. And I used a T-square to sort of smooth it down behind the radiator. And that's, mm -hmm. it's now three years. It's terrific. Reflectix. So there are ways, and, and we're just uneducated about this. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel a little, a little sheepish to say, you know, I'm a fairly educated person on these issues and I, I certainly didn't know about Reflectix, so. <laughs> it's fairly new. I've been begging the people at the Home Depot and the Lowe's, where's some product? Where's, oh, and the old guys. Oh yeah, we used to have something. We used to have something. And I didn't know what I was going to do. You can use aluminum foil, to tell you the truth. Unbelievable enough. It's like space blankets. Do they really work? Yes. And I want to add just one more thing, which is now all of the banking in Europe is refusing buildings to fund buildings that aren't energy efficient because in a few years, those buildings will be worthless. So yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a juggling thought that, wow, the banks aren't going to be allowed to add to their portfolio loans for buildings that aren't built to a high standard. Well, it's, I, I would say it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I, I do pick up the little golden nuggets all day long. And that's, uh, that's one of them. Fabulous. Well, I, I am going to look for Reflectix next time I go to the hardware store. All right. Um, and I just, just moved into a place here in DC and uh, in the, in the business of going to the hardware store on a fairly regular clip. So um, we'll have to check that out. Wilden, thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I think your, your views and, and vision for this industry uh, are powerful. They help us chart a course drawing on your experience. And it's, it's just a pleasure to, to have you join us today. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate uh, your, your views as well. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation around using inclusive financing to advance for deployment as well as energy efficiency not to be forgotten. Terrific. Thank you so much. This is wonderful to visit with you. <laughs> Thank you.